I need to just tell you that this sermon today is not going to be neat and tidy. Okay, so if you came prepared for a neat and tidy sermon, you're, you're in the wrong place today. Right? And that's because I'm really going to talk about something that's not neat and tidy, and that is our losses and our griefs and what that means, and especially in this season of Lent. Um, I'm, there's going to be so much more that can be said than what I'm going to say today, but I would like to just share with you about grief as a Lenten discipline. And the idea that grief reminds us. Our text for the day comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, some words that you're probably very familiar with, perhaps, but let me share them with you. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. And may God bless his word to us. This is the word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. That passage of scripture is never reserved for Lent. Far from it, actually. If you read the entire passage, you see that it points to the hope of the resurrection. And it also points to the return of Christ when he makes all things right and the hope we have in that. And that's actually, believe it or not, what pulls us through Lent. Technically speaking, as we walk through this season in the Christian year called Lent, the Sundays are still reserved for resurrection. Every Sunday. So it's this idea of the resurrection and of eternal life and all those things that pull us through this 40-day span of time in a 365-day year. So Lent is a season. But it's also seasons in the span of our earthly life. We move in and out of Lent in this ashes-to-ashes, dust-to-dust life of ours, or as described by God after mankind decided that they would be better at being God in the garden, God said one consequence is you are dust and to dust you shall return. And so we live this dusty life and in this dusty life we face dust storms in life. But back to this passage of Scripture, this passage is not a passage reserved for Lent. That is, until it is. In these words. So that you may not grieve as others. I want you to hear what the text says. Hear it. Hold it. The text says this. There is hope in our grief. I also want you to hear what the text does not say. Hold it. Even tighter maybe in some ways. It does not say we do not grieve. Now, the truth is, we hate the G word. 
We hate the word grief. And yet, 66% of the Psalms are about grief and lament. Two books of the Bible are given to loss and grief and lament. Lamentations, appropriate title, and the book of Job, 90% of which is to complete unresolved grief. We live in what someone has called a happy, clappy world, including the church, where we want to avoid sadness, and we want to avoid sorrowing, and we want to avoid grief. And, and even the songs we primarily sing, perhaps rightfully so, are upbeat and upward, but the griefs we bear pull us into the downbeat and downward nobility of faith. I'm so grateful for my friend, Dr. Russ Long, who was with you a couple weeks ago. He's just such a good guy, good brother, right? He sent me an article after he was with us here. And it was an article, maybe you are taking the um, Christianity Today Lent devotional. A woman by the name of Naran Vol wrote it. But she says this, We love our Jesus risen, not crucified and dying. Exalted, not broken, and entombed. Or as Tish Warren maybe captures it better in her book, Prayer in the Night, she says, we just don't want to feel sad. We'll do almost anything to avoid it. We want grief to be a task we can complete, something we can just check off. Done with that. The oven timer of our soul dings and we're on to something else, but that isn't how grief works. We can control it as much as we can control the weather. Christians have to let ourselves be people who mourn. It's a divining characteristic of those Jesus called blessed. Jesus said, blessed are the mourning, those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And that tells me something. That if I don't mourn, I'm not going to be blessed. That if I don't mourn, I'm not going to open myself up to God. And God's not going to be able to get down into the depth of my soul if I keep all that stuff at the distance. Maybe it's because of my mother's death. There, I said it. Maybe I'm simply more reflective this season. But it seems to me that grief is a Lenten discipline. It's something to hold and stored, not something to just get over. And that is what we want to do, and we want others to do it too. Get over it. Our world wants us to move on and get over it. Come on, buck it up. But Lent itself calls us to stare into the face of our mortality and thus the reality of death, which we'll visit each one of us and learn some lessons from. I began to write these words when I knew I couldn't be with my people on Ash Wednesday, two days after my mother's death. 
And I began to think about how we stare into mortality and death during Lent, intentionally. And so grief, in a real way, is a discipline, a spiritual discipline for Lent. As I said, this isn't going to be very neat, but let me just share with you some lessons and you can let your soul attach to where it needs to. How's that? First of all, grief reminds us of our limits. We come face to face with our humanness. Sadness is a reminder that I'm human, that I feel that I'm alive. We come face to face with the broken places in life that leave us with no answers. I don't know if you've discovered this, but that's often most of life. I come face to face with my limitations as a Christian. And it's there we discover something that Brother Curtis Almquist wrote last week. To cultivate wisdom is to remember we are not God. Amen. Everyone glad to know that you're not God? Raise your hand. But you see, we have this problem. We act as if we are. And grief reminds us that we're not. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust become more than words, and we feel the ashiness of life. Then there's this. Grief reminds us of our sinful capacity. I want you to think about that with me. You know what happens when we don't attend to grief? It comes out sideways, often in hard ways and harsh ways. And sometimes grief, sometimes we show our worst selves. It's just kind of the nature of what pain does sometimes. Can we be honest about that? This capacity to be other than what God desires, driven by selfishness and self-exaltation and ego, there's a word for that. It's sin. It's the right word. Psalm 51 was read in this sanctuary on Ash Wednesday. It is a standard psalm for Lent. Standard psalm. Well, part of that psalm is a prayer of grief over the choices made that hurt God and others. Hear these words. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, that's, he's, he's grieving. We need to grieve. Our capacity to injure God and others, we need to grieve when we do that. And here's why. Because confession and forgiveness and repentance, all of that begins with this grief. You're not going to confess you're wrong, seek forgiveness, and turn from it if you're not sorry about it and if you're not grieving it. So part of us, part of what Lent does is it calls us to grieve. As we recognize we're not God, we're reminded about how sometimes we hurt God and others. Grief then, thirdly, reminds us to let go. 
Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. We're faced with this fact. No one has ultimate control over the eventualities of life. My mother's case, she got sick on a Tuesday night and she died the following Monday night. Didn't see that coming. We, were, we had already planned to celebrate her 90th. We were going down June 21st. We were going to surprise her and an invasion of seven of her children going to show up and celebrate her 90th and take her to dinner. We weren't even going to tell her. We are just going to walk in on dinner time and say, hey, Mom, we're taking you to dinner. We're reminded we do not have control over the eventualities of life, whether that's the death of another or our own. There's a release in grief as I recognize it calls me to trust God. Some of you, and if you haven't read anything from Hudson Taylor, I would invite you that you do, especially if you're under the age of 30 or 40. He's from a whole nother generation, 19th century. But I invite you to look at what he says. Hudson Taylor was this amazing missionary to China in the 19th century. He was a giant of faith, wrote extensively on the power of prayer, and saw amazing answers to prayer. But his life was a life of unending trial. His wife Maria died when she was 33. Four of his eight children did not live to the age of 10. He was separated from his children. And then his, his second wife, Jenny, for long periods of time, he was often racked by illness and injury. And then, as an elderly man, he was given the news of the Boxer Rebellion, if you know history, in China, right? And he got the news that among the 30,000, 30,000 Chinese Christians who were slaughtered, 58 of them were his missionaries, 21 of which were children of the missionaries. When he got that news, he suffered a mental and physical breakdown. Man of God. Man of prayer. Someone now we look back and we uphold. And he had a complete mental and physical breakdown. What did the man of prayer say? This is what he said. I cannot read. I cannot think. I cannot even pray. But I can trust. Don't be afraid of when you cannot pray. How great is it that the Bible tells us that Jesus intercedes for us? Do not pray as someone else and do not pray as you were able to pray yesterday. Pray where you are and who you are. And some days all that is is, I can't pray, God. But I'm trusting you. 
And some days, I've had this many times over decades now, where some days I just say to God, there's only one thing I know, God, and that's I love you. Even on those days when I'm unsure, I know he loves me. But this one thing I know, I know, I love you, God. I cannot even pray, but I can trust. Which also reminds us that grief reminds us how we truly need God. Because it thrusts us, it thrusts me into the unknown and unwelcome darkness we all try to avoid. We run from it. We try to run from sadness, and we try to run from grief, and we try to run from hardship. And if, and if you, that's you, just look at the front of the line. If you see someone running really hard at the very front, that's me. I'm very allergic to pain and grief and hardship. But the truest of prayers take a root through our tears. And we are reduced to nothing but God. Just like Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people look at that prayer and look at it as if a lack of faith. But I don't know if there's a greater declaration prayer of faith in the Bible than these words of Jesus. Because you know what? When our prayers become that honest, when our prayers become that pure, that's a prayer of trust. When our prayers become that raw and naked and authentic and vulnerable before God, it's then we know how desperately we need God. It is, as Corey Ten Boom says, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Remember, it's called faith. And sometimes faith brings us to the place where all we know is we have God. And that's what we need beyond feelings, beyond circumstances, beyond happy clappy. And then grief reminds us of the force called love. And let me just say this, love is a force to be reckoned with. The force of God's divine love. And we forget that. We forget that in our over-secularized, self-realized, pleasure-seeking, experience-driven world. We forget this. Love is painful. Love, you see, we just celebrated love around the table, but what was the heart of it? It's sacrifice, it's pain. And we are thrust into that truth in our grief. I was given a gift the Sunday night before my mother died. I volunteered to spend the night in the hospital. And my siblings all left. And when we're all there, it's quite the army. But it was just mom and me. I slept till about two. Then I got up and I was up the rest of the day. And she was struggling in a 
sweet, tender nurse came in and was there. And as I watched her struggle, boy, did that hurt. You know? She was beginning to lose her mental acuity some, but she was pretty vibrant. But why did it hurt? Well, as my mother was laying there dying, I had these periods of weeping that would rush over my soul. They would steal my joy. They would take my breath away. And they still do. Why is that? Well, that's because of love. The cross of Jesus reminds us that love willingly takes on the pain of another. And also, sometimes not willingly. But maybe eventually. Because we grieve the bad choices of those we love. Losses and those things. We grieve hurtful words, whether received or spoken. We grieve distant relationships, and we grieve dying loved ones, and none of us choose those things. So eventually, we end up taking on pain from another. But you see, grief has a direct connection to love. I introduced you to someone last summer named Nicholas Wolterstorff, who was a philosophical theologian. He's gone to be with the Lord. His son Eric died in a mountain climbing accident, and uh, Jim and Margaret gave me a beautiful picture of a footbridge of faith, which comes from Nicholas Wolterstorff's life. That you don't know that, that faith is like a footbridge and you don't know it'll hold you till you step on it. So in my office, I have this great picture they gave me. He said this. Powerful words for me. I think we ought to own our grief. I put it like this. If Eric was worth loving when he was alive, then he's worth grieving over when dead. Why would he not be? Right? Remember Jesus. Jesus took time to grieve. The shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, is Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Not some grand theological reason. His friend died. His, one of his best friends died. The family was broken apart. The community was wailing. Why did Jesus grieve? The other place Jesus grieved was when he was walking into the city of Jerusalem. And he looked at the city of Jerusalem and he saw what they were not and he saw how they were not what God wanted them to be and he saw how it was awful and selfish and broken. And I just wonder, my friends, before we stand up and talk about how awful our world is, before we point our fingers at those who we think are enemies of the faith, before we do any of that, I have a question. Are we crying? Are we grieving? the brokenness of our world, not just giving political commentary to it from whatever side. I, I think what Jesus would do is he'd look at it all and just weep. And that's what I see. 
Jesus took this time to grieve. Why did he do that? Why did he grieve over a lost friend and why did he grieve over a lost world? Love. Again, our friend Tish Warren said, any parent, any parent who has had to sit and watch their child destroy himself, watch their beloved walk into destruction, abuse or addiction, watch as the one they sang over disappears into someone they cannot recognize. knows something about how Jesus wept over Jerusalem. God himself took time to grieve because of love. Last thing, and then I'm done. Grief reminds us to live for what lasts. Death and pain are part of life. It's the promise from Jesus we all wish Thomas Jefferson cut out of the Bible when he was cutting all the miracles out of the Bible. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. I mentioned Naran Vol. Her mother died when she was 36 years old and Naran was just a child. And then a few years later, her sister died. And for years they would memorialize them they would talk about them. They would welcome them into their lives as memories. And she said this, honoring, accepting and honoring the reality of death is a life-giving practice. Rather than agitate, it reassures. Rather than scare, it secures. It makes grief into a gift that provides a framework for a more fulfilled living. And she goes on and says, for the season of Lent and Easter reminds us that sometimes things must die in order to bear a new fullness of life. Our grief becomes a framework. For a life lived for Jesus, a life lived for eternal things. When we make room for grief over losses and broken dreams and deaths, we make room for the living God and for the ways the living God wants to form us. As John Eldridge said, loss is a good place to start if you would recover and heal the vessel God wants to fill, if you would open up your life for God to meet you there. Because grief is an invitation to open up ourselves to God in the rawest and most vulnerable and truest places of the soul that just cuts through all the pretense. Grief demands honesty. And that is where we may find the deeper, lasting life. Isn't that what Jesus meant? Jesus, when he said, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life or loves their life less than or less than their love for God. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, for things that matter. I'm forced to ask the question when I grieve, what kernel of wheat do I need to let die? What needs to die in my life?
that I might have eternal life. My mother's death confronts me with my life and asks the question, what really matters? What really matters? What in my life needs to die so that I can live for the eternal, for that which will never die? Everything grief reminds us and teaches us is what Lent is all about. The call to stare into our mortality, to reflect, to mourn, to confess, to repent, to cling, to trust, to lament. And as the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And that is where we find life, for we know this. Here's what we know about Lent. Lent always ends with this, from our text. Hope, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Grief isn't about being lost in some morose discipline, but it's about coming honest before God. And at day's end, it really isn't, when it comes to Lent, what we give away, though we ought to fast and sacrifice. It's not what we gain, though in making room for God in Lent, we gain more richness with Christ. Rather, what it is, is we embrace our lives as being more fully human and more fully belonging to God. And Jesus reminds us he'll meet us there. I'm also grateful to my dear friend, Pastor Eddie. Tuesday morning, he texted me. He said, I'm here for you. Let me know. Or maybe that was Monday morning before my mother died. If you need anything, I'm there. I'm free to preach Sunday. I said, okay, one less thing I got to think about. It was Pastor Eddie said last week in this wilderness of grief, we are reduced to those things that are non-negotiable. And that is what I'm standing on these days, the great non-negotiable. And as Pete Grieg in his book, God on Mute says, he gives me words. He says, we are dearly loved and deeply held by the most powerful being in the universe. Let this be the great non-negotiable in our lives, the platform for all our thoughts, and the plumb line for all our prayers. We are held powerfully, dearly loved powerfully by the most powerful being in the universe. Worship team's going to come this morning. We're going to close today by singing an old song. It's an old song. It's not current. It's a hundred something years old. The author of this song is an Irishman by the name of Joseph Scriven. Joseph fell in love deeply with a woman in his homeland of Ireland from his hometown. They planned to get married. So on the day of the wedding, she saddled her horse and she began to ride toward her wedding day. And, and Joseph was there at the spot and he could see her coming in a distance down the road. And then she was crossing over the bridge to get over the river to get to where they were going to be wed. And while she got to the middle of the bridge, the horse, for some reason, got scared and bucked and threw her into the river. 
Joseph ran down and he jumped into the river and he tried to rescue her, but it was too late. He was so broken in his grief, he left Ireland and he moved to Canada. And while in Canada, after 12 years, he later met Eliza Roche and they planned to get married. But Eliza fell ill. And for three years, they would schedule a wedding, then postpone it, and reschedule and postpone it, and reschedule and postpone it for three years until, until Eliza succumbed to her illness and died. He would never give his heart to another. But in his deep grief and sorrow, he reached for the great non-negotiable of his life. And the song we now sing is the poem he wrote in this mountain of grief that he was bearing. And today while we're singing, if you have a loss, a lost dream, a loss of a hope, the grief of a death of a loved one, before you leave this church today, you want to come and kneel. Do so as we sing. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Stand with me. Let's sing together. If you'd like to come and pray, we invite you to do that.